Hello, everyone, and welcome to the uh, next episode of the uh, CNS uh, Controversies in Neurosurgery podcast. Um, today, um, uh, again, I'm Seth Oliveira. I'm from uh, Portland, Oregon, and I'm joined by my co-host, uh, Rashna Ali, um, as well as uh, we're today are very pleased to be joined by our uh, distinguished guest, uh, Dr. Joseph Chang. He is the um, chair of the Department of Neurosurgery at University of Cincinnati and he did his residency and fellowship at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Um, we're going to be discussing um, lumbar fusions for back pain and a low-grade spondylolisthesis. And so I guess before we get started, I'll you know, briefly let you uh, say hello there, Rashna, and then we'll, we'll introduce or we'll get started with Dr. Chang. Fantastic. Rashna Lee joining uh, you guys from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Chang. Well, thank you. And so just to get started here, so, you know, this is the, the intent is it, of this uh, podcast is to talk a little bit about um, some controversial subjects in neurosurgery and uh, one that certainly um, kind of is a perennial uh, favorite when we kind of talk about controversies is the use of, you know, kind of appropriate use of lumbar fusions. And um, I, we appreciate you being here for your expertise. And I thought we'd just start out, you know, um, kind of going through what, what you kind of see as a, just a clear indication for someone who, um, you know, would, would qualify for lumbar fusion and where, where you think there's uh, clinical equipoise. Sure. Well, thanks for that question. You know, since this is a controversies discussion, you know, I'll just start off by saying when people talk about lumbar fusions for back pain, I think that's a little bit misguided because back pain isn't really a diagnosis. So it's hard to give you a clear indication for lumbar fusion if you're talking about things like back pain, because really what you need to talk about is what is the appropriate diagnosis? You know, is the ismic spondylolisthesis? Is it a non-union or a fracture? you know, et cetera, then we'll have a better way of approaching it. And I think one of the big controversial discussions is how much training do you really need to have? How much understanding do you really need to have for things related that cause back pain um, to really be able to identify who benefits from a lumbar fusion? And I think once you do that, then I guess your question about equipoise will also be answered uh, when you go down that path. Right. And so, yeah, you, you kind of alluded to that a little bit, but what were sort of the, um, you know, things that are commonly treated, I guess, just for those who are kind of uh, you know, some of our, you know, kind of people early in their training, what, what's some of the, you know, common indications for, for lumbar fusions and, and what are some times where, you know, it may be used sort of appropriately or inappropriately uh, in your opinion? <laughs> yeah. Great question. You know, to kind of, answer backwards. If you're talking about inappropriate use, it's actually offering a surgery without a clear diagnosis of your goals. So for example, if you have someone with instability, let's say a dynamic ismic listhesis at L5S1 that you know has a high slip angle and moves from where you know displaces eight millimeters on standing versus supine with severe back pain related to that, even without neurologic symptoms, you could pretty much agree that that's something that needs to be treated or similar to any joint arthropathy with load bearing. If you have severe facet arthropathy or disc arthropathy where you can diagnose, um, you know, for example, uptake on scans like bone scans or uh, clear indications of 
load bearing, like uh, upright posture with you know intractable symptoms. You know, those are reasons to offer fusion, such as to increase the biomechanical stability. I think the challenge is when you don't have a clear indication, it's non-specific back pain, you can't localize it, and then the surgery becomes hit or miss, whether or not you, you know, kind of like hitting the lottery, getting the right spot for the patient, or really missing the mark on the diagnosis and doing a surgery that may not have any efficacy whatsoever. Right, and I think you kind of get, you know, your answers to the question have kind of also uh, kind of gotten to the underlying kind of issue that, you know, low back pain is so, so common mm -hmm. and uh, you know, it's not all surgical. And <laughs> I think we all, anyone in kind of practice, you know, get, gets, you know, kind of constant um, referrals for people with low back pain. And it's sort of our job to differentiate between those people we can help and those we can't. And, um, you know, I, I guess you, you mentioned in kind of briefly that there are certainly patients who have neurologic symptoms, you know, radiculopathy or certainly kind of more severe neurologic symptoms, you know, that, that uh, you know, kind of are, are kind of, you know, indications for operating might be a little bit more clear. Um, but, you know, again, getting back to what you, you kind of had said that, you know, low back pain is so common and that's really kind of what we're talking about today. And, and, you know, I think we could all agree a patient who has, you know, severe radiculopathy or, you know, with kind of you know, foraminal stenosis and things like that, it, it's a little bit more clear sometimes, but, um, you know, in your practice, you know, when someone comes in with, you know, back pain and, you know, kind of with or without sort of, you know, uh, imaging findings or other kind of test findings that, um, you know, may support that, you know, that, that they're a surgical candidate, what, you know, how do you counsel those patients, you know, kind of both with and without, you know, kind of, you know, clear evidence of their, um, you, know, you know, something that you might be able to help them with? Sure. You know, I think it really starts off with, as I mentioned before, diagnosis. You know, I would probably challenge most of our neurosurgical colleagues, you know, the next time they look at the MRI scan, especially the axial T2s, just look at the spare paraspinal muscles. And just to see, have you ever diagnosed anybody with chronic lumbar strain or even chronic lumbar sprain, um, you know, related to the muscles and ligaments? as a source of back pain, because I think once you get down to the diagnosis, it then gets into really addressing what the patient's pathology is. Similar to, you know, any other subjective symptom, like, you know, what, for example, like trigeminal neuralgia, if you can't localize the pain into a specific V2, V3 distribution, and it becomes atypical facial pain, the odds of the patient improving becomes really distinctly different for microvascular decompression, for example, than someone with a classic trigeminal neuralgia. And I think that's the same issue we have with, uh, you know, low back pain, that with low back pain that's, you know, clearly identified with, um, you know, with a pathology that you know can respond to surgery like lumbar fusion, you still will have patients, whether it's, you know, psychosocial issues or comp, somatization, that just will not get better because there's just no way for you to prove or disprove. However, I think what you really need to look at is you're not going to cure everybody, but is your success rate uh, high enough? And I think that's why collecting the outcomes data, looking at our long-term, you know, patient results become so key. Yeah. I, I think that's really an excellent point that you, you kind of, um, compared to other you know, things that we treat surgically, that if you don't have a proper diagnosis, you're, I, I think that, that trigeminal neuralgia uh, kind of you know, analogy is really kind of apropos that if you don't know what you're gonna 
you're not going to do a brain surgery on someone if you don't know where their brain tumor is. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, the same, same right. Well, it's the same thing with back pain. I can tell you, I see a lot of patients. I mean, I've even diagnosed patients with prostatitis in my clinic uh, just because depending on where you practice, you know, you have a middle-aged person who has known, you know, age-related spondylitic changes. They have acute back pain. A lot of times with PCP, the first thing they do is refer them to the surgeon to evaluate. I think that's the distinction. You know, someone with trigeminal neuralgia or epilepsy will typically see somebody else first before they hit the surgeon. But for things like spinal disorders, it's not unusual for the primary physician to refer directly to a surgeon to evaluate and manage, um, you know, including expecting us to manage or to order the non-operative modalities, which is why I think it's so key for us to have a good understanding of the diagnosis and uh, to really give the patients the options, you know, based on what you diagnose. Yeah. Building up on that, Dr. Chang, Mm -hmm. um, what, what, what uh, components of multidisciplinary um, do you currently have in your practice or think a good robust uh, spine practice should have to be able to take that onus off of the surgeon somewhat and, and be a part of shared decision-making and be able to treat all types of uh, pain syndromes, whether or not they be surgical or not? Mm. Well, um, good thing this is a controversy thing, so I'll say something kind of controversial on this is that sometimes I don't think those asides from surgeons will really put in the effort to do that. Um, the reason I'm not, I'm not criticizing, you know, many of our colleagues, but for example, you know, many of the pain physicians we talk to will start managing pain with, without a diagnosis. Like they're not ordering MRIs to try to figure out what's going on with the patient. They're not really digging deep into it. They're just trying to manage the patient's symptoms. And same thing with our physiatrist colleagues, where many of them don't specialize in spine physiatry. Some do, you know, don't get me wrong, but many of them are doing spine as much as they're doing sports medicine, looking at uh, knee pain and other things. And so really what it comes down to, and I think this is something that we just have to accept as a neurosurgeon, is that we do a lot of spine, you know, whether it's in private practice or, you know, a general practice or a spine specific practice, overall spine role spine pathologies are a large percentage of what we do. And like I said, it frequently bypasses. The challenge I think we have is when we try to do the knee jerk reflex and create teams kind of handing off the diagnosis to, you know, advanced practice providers or others that actually may not have the same understanding of the spinal anatomy and pathology that we do, uh, given our training, you know, and so I think it's just one of the things I would probably say is, Again, not to be overly controversial, is we have to watch out that surgeons don't assume that being a good technician for spinal, you know, a spinal procedure from a weekend course turns them into a good spine surgeon. Right. And, you know, and in that um, kind of uh, line of thinking, you know, um, do you have any recommendations or kind of, you know, clinical pearls or things that you would, when you have a patient sitting in front of you that, um, comes in with you know, some spondylitic changes and primarily complaining of back pain. You know, when, when you're seeing that patient, what you know, kind of what questions would you recommend that people really focus on to differentiate between people with surgical and non-surgical? Mm-hmm. Great question. You know, it's ironic that the model that I use is very similar to how I actually suggest people to study for taking the oral boards. 
So if you have a patient in front of you, what's the first thing you do? You collect that history and physical, right? Chief complaint, the collection of the symptoms, collection of signs. And then what do you do with the history and physical? You localize the lesion, right? You try to figure out what part of the anatomy has the highest likelihood of having those symptoms. So for example, if it's neck and arm pain, is it Parsons Turner with a brachial plexitis or is it a cervical radiculopathy or is it a rotator cuff injury? And you can actually, and that's why when we talk about things like the boards, differentiating perineal nerve palsy from an L5 radiculopathy, you know, for a drop foot, I think that's the key. So I think that's the first thing I would say is localize the lesion. So if you think it's facet arthropathy, doing provocative testings, you know, for example, similar to a Spurlings, where you do a extensional oblique view or a, a maneuver to see if you can load the joint. If you're not exactly sure, that's when you do, you know, your confirmatory testing. So for example, um, medial branch blocks, facet injections, if you're localizing it to that. Disc blocks, if you think it's, you know, disc-related symptoms are related to that. Um, just as some examples, if you think it's you know, uh, overloading joints with arthropathy or the um, vertebral bodies, then get a whole body bone scan or a CT spec to see if you have uptake, you know, from bone stress. Those are just some of the things I would suggest as far as how we localize and diagnose. And in terms of those types of testing that you just referred to, how often are you using those in your practice? Ooh, quite a bit. So, you know, and it kind of gets into based on the diagnosis that I think we're leaning towards, you know, I will then triage the patients to the other options. So for example, if you're asking for epidural steroid injections, you have to think about what's your goal. Because ironically, you know, epidural steroids are still not FDA approved, right? So this is the, uh, the funny thing is that we are so focused on worrying about offering surgery to patients, but the FDA still has not approved steroids in the spine with their black box statement talking about the uh, risks of complications being higher than any sustainable benefits from that. But it's something that is standard of care. You know, people order it all the time. And so I think this is what you need to think about is what is your goal with that injection? And I think the same thing with physical therapy. If you look at the various modalities that therapists can do, uh, which you know, if you ever wanted to figure out what they can do, just see what people get paid for. And so if you look at CPT codes and what people get paid for, you can pretty much get an idea of what kind of procedures people do. And the therapists, you know, sometimes when you look at what they can do, you also want to think about what is the goal for the patient? Are you treating a chronic lumbar strain? Are you treating, you know, a facet arthropathy uh, that, you know, is causing, you know, severe axial pain from loading, et cetera? And then that may help you kind of guide um, how you assess the patient clinic and then what options you give them. That's really great. And like, like I said, you know, this is something that anyone, any neurosurgery resident or, you know, kind of practicing neurosurgeon runs into this, you know, frequently, I think, regardless Absolutely. of their subspecialty. Um, and then, you know, in, in terms of, um, you know, kind of s- someone where you, you and yeah, I guess you kind of already addressed this, but uh, someone who comes in with kind of uh, back pain or maybe kind of a, you know, multi-level kind of mild spondylolisthesis, you know, how, how are you deciding between different levels of the spine? Are you using, you know, blocks and things like that? Or, you know, if someone has kind of multi-level changes and, you know, you're, you're trying to decide if they need a big surgery or a small surgery, uh, you, any kind of words of advice about that? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think localizing the levels is pretty key. And I think that's one of the challenges you see. I mean, we've been criticized as a specialty sometimes, you know, for being so uh, focused on spinal deformity these days that someone with an L4-5 stenosis and a shopping cart posture is diagnosed as a positive sagittal balance and offered a, you know, major kyphotic revision or a kyphotic surgery with osteotomies, et cetera. And I think that's where the diagnosis becomes key overall. As far as, you know, some of the, um, you know, the aspects of the levels, I do think it's important to kind of, to really be able to identify, um, you know, which levels and what you're trying to really address. And so things like diagnostic injections, for example, uh, like, for example, if you look at the lumbar fusion guidelines from the spine section, you know, if you look at the literature, disca blocks, if you're thinking it's a discogenic symptom, the extinction of the symptoms, you know, actually is a more reliable approach, at least based on the literature we have, than, say, discograms with provocative um, testing. Um, that being said, there may be other reasons you choose different levels, including things like, uh, you know, lumbar kyphosis, things like that. But I do think that's an important thing. And how I personally do it is a combination of diagnostic injections, looking at the morphology. So for example, if the CT scan shows, uh, you know, severe arthropathy that, you know, or is hot on bone scan at multiple levels in the spine, um, that would drive me to do a multi-level approach than a single level, especially if I can't isolate it based on a neurologic presentation like radiculopathy. Yeah. And you kind of alluded to my next question, which is, you know, for for the patient who has neurogenic claudication and back pain, I think that sort of sometimes can be a difficult person to decide when they're, you know, in front of you in clinic, whether they can get away with the decompression alone or whether that person needs a fusion as well. And, you know, obviously that depends a lot on the details of their imaging and whatnot, but, uh, um, you know, for those patients that have some back pain that may be kind of a form of claudication, um, you know, and, you know, they respond, you know, partially to injections and things like that, are, and maybe have a slight spondylolisthesis or something like that, you know, um, those patients where you're, there's, you're definitely kind of on the fence, you know, do you lean towards fusing that person or do you think about, you know, doing a decompression and see how they do in that situation? Mm-hmm. It really depends on, the patient's uh, situation. So for example, you kind of alluded to dural irritation causes back pain. You know, you see that with subarachnoid hemorrhages, that's one of the symptoms, uh, meningitis, you know, that's why we have Koenig's and Brzezinski signs. And even, uh, you know, mixture, you know, even Hall with mixture and bars, original work, people with disc herniations will have some component of back pain from dural irritation from their disc. So we, we see that overall. So I think it's important to kind of look at back pain, not necessarily as a knee jerk that you need, you know, stabilization and hardware, but as much as, you know, is it associated with instability or something that you really need to potentially reconstruct? So for example, even with a degenerative listhesis, if I'm decompressing for radiculopathy and doing it through a MIS or tubular approach, you know, I don't just jump ahead and do fusions for that. On the other hand, if I'm doing it as a second or third time revision uh, after maybe prior MIS procedures, then yes. And I start saying, I'm going to potentially be resecting enough of the surrounding joints that I'm going to end up with instability um, with the back pain being really similar, but across both sides, for example. So I think that's how I personally approach it. 
And I think the the decompression, you know, we do decompressions all the time, but it is um, interesting that over time, for example, I still do posterior cervical laminectomies as needed for patients, the same with lamoplasties. And I think the idea of preserving the capsular ligaments. So, you know, as neurosurgeons, we know that if we violate the capsular ligaments, like bilateral perch facets, no bony injuries, you violate that, you're going to get uh, instability. How's that different than when you cauterize the capsular ligaments on exposure, creating iatrogenic instability? Same thing, the lumbar spine. If you're cognizant of the, you know, the ligamentous integrity of that region, and you can do a decompression without violating it, I certainly think uh, fusion is not needed at that time. On the other hand, if you do violate it or iatrogenic instability, like someone with a foraminal stenosis that you're trying to get, you know, uh, the lateral recess and you get a little bit too far and you fracture the pars, certainly stabilize it, you know, and I think those are just some of the things that, um, or some of the variables that we have to take into consideration. And then for a patient where really the goal of the surgery is to treat axial back pain, are you, um, you know, I guess we haven't kind of defined what we mean by a fusion and that that sort of is different patient to patient, obviously, but for a patient where you're really not looking for neural decompression, are you thinking about anterior or lateral approaches or percutaneous screws, or obviously it's patient to patient, but patient where you're not looking for neural decompression, are you, are you doing sort of anterior and lateral approaches for those patients? The short answer is yes. I mean, if we didn't have the ability to diagnose you know, pathologies with ax- with isolated axial pain that doesn't need a decompression, then things like disc arthroplasty wouldn't even be needed, you know, because if you think about it, how many of us, you know, aggressively decompress the spinal canal with an anterior lumbar approach? Uh, everything's done indirectly. Same thing with lateral approaches. Um, now, that being said, I do think there are times, you know, if you look at some of the literature that's available, that, for example, adjacent segment spondylosis, where you have patients with adjacent segment disease, say at L3-4 above a prior posterior lumbar fusion, that things like the anterior uh, standalones, um, in one way or another, certainly have a benefit. So those are just some examples that I think that I think we should, that I think we can all pretty much agree with, that if we're able to diagnose that, that the patient results are also fairly consistently and consistently good for giving them those types of options. Well, that's great. You know, I, I've asked a lot of questions. Rashna, did you have any questions for Dr. Chang? Of course. Um, so since this is a controversies podcast, uh, Dr. Chang, um, what are your thoughts on um, using neuromodulation in uh, low back pain and completely virgin backs who, who might uh, also uh, be candidates for, uh, for a fusion procedure? And, you know, considering we're not talking about patients who have severe stenosis, but claudication, et cetera but, you know, mild spondylolisthesis, some, some low back discomfort. Um, are there uh, situations where you would, uh, would consider neuromodulation prior to uh, uh, an open fusion on these patients? Yes, the, I, think, I think they all have their roles. I would say that neuromodulation, you know, spinal cord stimulators, similar to morphine pumps, uh, others, 
are certainly a good way of addressing the pain symptoms themselves. But I think one of the big keys that I think is misunderstood is really the natural history. You know, the lumbar fusion alone is not really meant to address pain per se. It's meant to address a pathology that potentially has a progressive um, course. So for example, if someone has a, you know, a, a fracture dislocation and they're going to have a progressive listhesis, I don't think it, anybody's going to argue that stabilizing that is bad. Can you still treat that symptom or symptomatically with neuromodulation? I suspect you probably could or a morphine pump at that level. Uh, however, that being said, I think that they have different reasons. So if you have a patient that has a fairly static pathology, you know, for example, in 80-year-old who has a stable spondylosis and you know, arthropathy uh, with pain that's fairly diffuse that you're not really going to be able to reverse, I think, you know, using neuromodulation certainly would be a good option for that as well. Uh, on the other hand, I think if you have something that you're worried about the natural history of progression, say, a you know, a vertebral body metastatic lesion. Sure, you can mask the symptoms uh, like we used to do for chordotomies, you know, for chronic pain, but you're probably going to want to treat the tumor, right? So I think that's where we um, really have to look at drawing the line. And I think that's the important thing for neurosurgeons is that we're not a one-size-fits-all type of group. And that's why we have so many subspecialties with expertise. But in overall, even though we all are also specialized, it's important for all of us to be cognizant of what pathology we're treating. I think that really gets back to your point. You know, there was recently actually one of the other CNS podcasts was on neuromodulation and there was an argument made that you shouldn't be doing very much redo spine surgery, that if someone fails, just go straight to neuromodulation. And um, I, I think that gets back to your guiding principle of knowing the uh, diagnosis and you know, obviously if you, you sort of do a surgery and it doesn't help and the person's still symptomatic, but if they have progression of their underlying condition and need a bigger surgery, you know, years down the road, then that's a different situation, obviously. Well, unfortunately, I saw a patient today in clinic that has not only revision surgeries, but a spinal cord stimulator that the natural history is that the hard work kept loosening, now sustained pedicle fractures, subsidence of the cages that are now displacing anteriorly. Mm. So that's why I was saying that we can mask the symptoms for a period of time, but if we don't treat the underlying issue, like the guy's vitamin D was 16.4, right? Mm -hmm. So it's one of these things where between bone biology issues, loosening of the hardware, um, we still got to treat the underlying pathology based on our diagnosis. I think that's very good advice. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we're getting towards the end of our time. Uh, Dr. Chang, can you think of anything that we didn't talk about that you would like to convey to our listeners? No, I think these are certainly poignant questions, and I really appreciate the opportunity for me to you know, sit here and just kind of share some of my uh, views on this. Yeah, well, like I said, it's very uh, common and, and, and important to, to you know, kind of think through these issues and um, I guess we'll kind of wrap up there. And again, thank you for your time. Thank you, Rushna, for joining us. And uh, for all the listeners, go to uh, cns.org and check out the rest of the offerings and, in terms of our education uh, material. And uh, we'll, we'll call it a, a, the end of the episode there. Thank you guys very much. All right. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Chang. Thanks, everyone.